Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So for instance, a wild aquatic bird comes in and lands on a rice paddy somewhere in southern Asia. It defecates and urinates in this rice paddy while it's dabbling around for some insects. And this rice paddy is also a place where ducks from one of the local farmers come and do their dabbling during the day. So the ducks pick up this virus and then the ducks go back at night to the house. It might be underneath the house. In some cases, it might be right next to a pig pen. So the ducks in some cases pass the virus to pig. If a pig contains two different kinds of influenza virus, there's a possibility that those two different kinds of influenza virus can hybridize inside the pig and come out as a third kind of virus. And there's a possibility that that virus will be very infectious of humans and humans might get it from the pig. That's David Quammen, National Geographic writer and author. And this is episode 101 of the Plant Proof Podcast. How have you been? I hope all is well. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's awesome to be back here again for another episode with you. For new listeners, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and currently writing a book on nutrition with Penguin. I'm glad that you managed to find the show and I hope you get something out of today's episode. Today, I bring you a really interesting episode, a bonus episode, so to speak, as it was very much impromptu on zoonotic or zoonotic diseases, infectious diseases like COVID-19 that jump from animals to humans. I find this area of science absolutely fascinating not just because of the virus itself, but more so of how connected many of the problems are that we're facing today. There is significant overlap, this interconnectedness between our unhealthy human population, chronic diseases, a degrading planet, our unethical farming practices, and the birth of these new infectious diseases, these emerging diseases. The crazy part, scientists believe there are over 1.5 million viruses in the animal kingdom yet to be discovered. The single greatest threat to humans in the coming centuries is ourselves. We are living unsustainably on a planet with diverse ecosystems and finite resources that rather than dominating, deserve our respect. To explore this area of science, I could think of no one better than famous science writer David Quammen. You really are in for a treat with this, and and I feel so privileged that he was able to, to join me for this recording. David has spent decades researching evolution, ecology, conservation, and infectious diseases such as HIV and Ebola, traveling to areas where various diseases originate from and working on the ground with scientists to study bats in China, monkeys in Bangladesh, and gorillas in the Congo. In addition to writing for National Geographic 
and New York Times Magazine. David has written several books on zoonotic diseases, including Spillover, a book he published in 2012 where he traces the origins of recent outbreaks and makes it clear that these spillovers, where a disease jumps from animals to humans, is not just misfortune, but a result of human activity. With that said, let's jump into it. Here's David Quammen. I'll see you on the other side for a debrief. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. Good to be with you. It's it's certainly exciting. I'm really looking forward to to digging into all things infectious disease diseases with you. And it's just a pleasure to have someone on the show that is is so across this topic. So thank you firstly for for taking the time to to join me. You're you're very welcome. Yeah. Now you've written books on on AIDS, uh, Ebola, and and recently you wrote a a book in 2012, I believe, uh, Spillover, which essentially documents the the animal origins of of various infectious diseases, uh, zoonotic diseases as they're called that have jumped over to, to the human species, Ebola, SARS, uh, AIDS, and, and uh, I've even heard you speak about Hendra, which is a virus from Australia. And within this book, you pose the, the question, what will the, the next one be? As if it's not if, but, but more when. And it seems like we may be living that out now some eight years later. Right, yes. At the end of Spillover, I describe asking a number of uh, of uh, leading disease scientists what the next big one would look like if there was going to be a next big one. And I even capitalized next big one, NBO. And essentially what they told me, a consensus of what they told me in various bits was that, yes, there will be a next big one, a next global pandemic. It'll be caused by a virus. That virus will come out of an animal, a wild animal. What kind of a wild animal? Well, maybe a, maybe a primate and maybe a bat, very possibly a bat. What kind of virus? Well, a virus that has a capacity to evolve reasonably quickly and has some history of infecting humans. For instance, an influenza virus or a coronavirus. Where might that happen? Well, someplace where humans come in contact with wild animals such as, oh, a wet market in a place such as, oh, China. So there it was in bits and pieces, which I sort of assembled in the book. It was not me being prescient. It was them being wise and drawing conclusions from the data that they were gathering, essentially projecting what we're going through now. And we'll, we'll probably dig into, to, I guess, some of the information later on that perhaps has led them to, to sort of this conclusion that, you know, the writing is on the wall, that there is going to be a next pandemic. But before we do that, you yourself, uh, I'm interested to, to sort of preface this conversation. You're a writer, but you're also an explorer from, from what I've come across. And you've been traveling around the world, it seems, with scientists in, in various countries that have been looking at these infectious diseases. That's right. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself an explorer. I'd call myself a <laughs> No, it's just a, a journalist and a nonfiction writer who follows scientists into the field to, to watch their work and to learn about it and to observe it. But yes, I spent a lot of time with infectious disease field biologists, ecologists, 
veterinarians, the people who do the disease detective work when a new disease spills over into humans. I went to the Congo a couple of times, uh, went once with a fellow who was uh, working to uh, draw blood from uh, tranquilized gorillas to look for Ebola antibodies, went to the border areas of Cambodia near the Vietnam border with a fellow who was studying avian influenza, went to Bangladesh a couple of times, Malaysia, a number of other spots, and of course, of course, came to Queensland the suburb of Hendra, to learn about the story of Hendra virus, and also spent time in um, Northern Territory with a scientist who was studying bats up there, and crawled into a few caves in Southern China looking for, uh, looking for bats carrying SARS. So I got my feet wet and had an interesting time and managed to stay healthy for a number of years while I was uh, researching this subject. And, and that's, uh, that's the way I like to work. I don't like to do telephone interview sort of reporting. I like to go out into the field and and spend time with the, the scientists who are working on these things. And see it firsthand. That, that was actually one of my questions about staying healthy. I mean, it would have been very exciting, but at the same time, I'm, I'm sure you were also, were there sort of concerns in the back of your mind about the, the places that you were traveling and the risk that you may have personally been taking? Yeah, I, I love life. And the scientists I was, I was traveling with, they love life. They were in in the main. They were taking precautions with personal protective equipment and uh, other measures. And my policy was: I trust these scientists, so I'll go just about anywhere with them, and and watch them doing these forms of research, looking for dangerous viruses. And I will wear whatever protective equipment they're wearing, and I'll stand three feet behind them with my notebook in my hands or my hands behind my back, so that they can't turn around and hand me a struggling um, giant fruit bat, all claws and teeth and dripping virus. And, um, and it worked out okay. I, I got, not, I'm not going to, I'm going to knock on wood now, Simon. So I, I, I did stay healthy. And, and, and tell me, what was the sort of initial inspiration for you to become interested in infectious diseases and, mm-hmm. and the origins of these diseases in the first place? Yeah. Well, I had been a writer who focused on ecology and evolutionary biology, writing magazine articles and writing books about evolutionary biology, field biology, ecology, conservation, those sorts of things. And then I, uh, I was sent on an assignment for National Geographic to uh, spend weeks walking across forests in the Congo with an American explorer, a real explorer, uh, and biologist who was doing sort of an epic survey hike across the last remaining great forest of the Congo Basin. I didn't walk the whole way with him. He walked for 2,000 miles. I walked for stretches of a week here and 10 days there with him. At one point, we spent 10 days walking through what was known to be Ebola habitat, a forest in northeastern Gabon that was known to contain Ebola virus hiding somewhere within an animal of some species or other, species unknown. The animal in which a virus hides when it's not infecting humans is referred to as the reservoir host. And the reservoir host of Ebola at that point was still unknown. Sorry to interject there, David, just just to clarify. So that at this stage, Ebola hadn't been documented in humans, but we were aware that it was in the animal kingdom? No, it had been documented in humans as of 1976. 
first uh, known outbreak of Ebola was 1976. That's when it was given its name by a fellow who came to be a friend of mine, a wonderful disease biologist named Carl Johnson. He led the first outbreak response in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1976. I got interested in it partly through knowing him, got interested in Ebola virus. And then I came along in the year 2000 and was hiking across this forest in uh, northeastern Gabon. And we knew it to be Ebola habitat because there had been a human outbreak of Ebola in a village on, on the edge of this forest. We, so we knew it was there in some animal or other. We didn't know which animal. But I knew enough about it to know that it affects and, and makes very ill and can kill chimpanzees and gorillas as well as humans. So chimpanzees and gorillas we knew could not be the reservoir host because it kills them too quickly. But they are they share victimhood with us. And so while walking across this forest and pondering this, I got very interested in the ecology and evolutionary biology of Ebola. And from there, by extension, more and more interested in the ecology and evolutionary biology of these scary viruses, these zoonotic viruses in general. And, and that led to the book project. It's fascinating. And if, if we were to sort of just, I guess, top level define a few of our terms here for the listeners, maybe we'll, we'll start with zoonotic viruses and, and, and what that actually means. Right. A zoonosis is an animal infection that's transmissible to humans. It could be a virus or it might be a bacterium or some other infectious microbe. Something that, that lives as a, as a tiny parasitic form within an animal. And if that is transferable to humans, then uh, that we call that a zoonosis. If it gets into humans and causes disease in humans, then we call that a zoonotic disease. And this book of mine, Spillover, was all about the science and uh, some of the narrative about zoonotic disease. And 60% of human infectious diseases fall into this category. They are zoonotic diseases in the strict sense. So it's not a, it's not a minor topic. It's not a, a strange fringe subject uh, uh, out on the edge of medicine. It's, it's dead center. And that includes some of our scariest new diseases, as well as some of our most notorious old diseases like bubonic plague, which also is a, is a zoonosis that comes out of rats by way of fleas and can infect humans. So these, I mean, these diseases are, are coming from wild animals and animals that we breed into the world, or is it, is it starting with wild animals? It starts with wild animals. Generally, these are things in wild animals. Let's define another term, the title of my book, spillover. Spillover is the moment when one of these zoonotic agents, virus or otherwise, passes from its wild animal host into its first human victim. That's what we call spillover. And then if it transmits in humans, then we call that a zoonotic disease. And usually, almost without exception, the origin is wild animals. But there are some zoonotic diseases that are passed through domestic animals as sort of an intermediary. And of course, Hendra is one of those, passing from bats, the Hendra virus, into horses and then in some cases from horses into humans. I went to Hendra and I got to meet a wonderful man named Peter Reed, a veterinarian, and he worked the very first Hendra virus event, the very first spillover and outbreak of Hendra virus in humans. It was in 
of course, in the suburb of Hendra, it was at a stables, and there were three, there was an outbreak of this horrible disease among horses. Nobody knew what it was at the time. They thought it might have been poison feed. They thought the first horse, maybe she had been bit by a poisonous snake. They worked to save these horses. More than a dozen horses died in the course of a few days with foamy froth, uh, bloody froth coming out of their nostrils and convulsions and things. I think I don't need to tell Australian listeners how mysterious and perplexing and alarming Hendra can be. But one of those three men was Peter Reed. Another was a stable foreman named Ray Unwin. I got to meet him. And the third of them was a famous stable owner uh, and horse trainer named Vic Rail, Vicky Rail. And he died from Hendra. He was the very first known human victim. So I did not get to meet Vic Rail. But those other two men were very helpful to me when I was researching my book. So tell me, what was it about Hendra specifically? Because I, I, I will probably come into, I guess, the differences between different viruses in their, in their ability to spread. But what, what was it particularly about Hendra that you know, meant it was, it was contained? Well, uh, we were lucky with Hendra, relatively lucky, because it doesn't spread very readily from human to human. It spreads very readily from horse to horse for biological reasons uh, that I won't go into. But it is not transmissible readily from human to human so that there, there continue to be, I know, occasional spillovers of Hendra virus coming from, from bats getting into a horse or two. And then there are efforts, of course, to protect people from now from being exposed to that. Peter Reed and Ray Unwin had no idea what they were getting into, so they were up to their elbows in, in horse blood and horse saliva trying to clear the windpipes of these horses. Now people know better than that, and they protect themselves, I assume, when there is a suspected Hendra outbreak in a horse. If a person does get infected, the person generally does not seem to be likely to infect loved ones immediately. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's, it's a matter for caution, but not anything like, for instance, this coronavirus that we're facing now. Sure. So I think that that's an interesting point because you mentioned before, you alluded to the fact that the, the virus, essentially from an evolutionary perspective, it, it doesn't want to kill the, the host. Would I be correct in saying that? Roughly correct, but let's let me go into that a little bit. First of all, viruses, I know you're speaking metaphorically when you say want. Viruses don't have desires and don't have intentions, but their behavior is shaped by evolution, by good old-fashioned Darwinian evolution, and the, the fittest survive. And so in order for them to achieve evolutionary success, they follow different strategies, you might call them. And the strategy of killing the first host that they get into is not a very effective evolutionary strategy for propagating yourself over time and across space. So it's not in the interests of viruses generally to kill every human that a new virus gets into, because those viruses that kill a little bit less quickly and transmit a little bit better from one human to another, those are the ones that will survive, prosper, and spread. So that, that's just another way of saying what you were saying in a, in a more pointed way. And I guess, is that sort of speaking to the fact, because what I'm thinking about is that some of these viruses, for example, like Hendra, comes from bats. But is the virus itself killing the bats or is it more living, you know, living within them? within that population? The bats are generally not affected very much as far as we can tell. 
And that's part of the relationship between them. I don't remember if we've introduced this term yet, but the animal in which a virus lives long-term, inconspicuously, without causing much in the way of symptoms, if any, we call that the reservoir host, the natural host or the reservoir host. So bats, a couple of your giant fruit bat species are the reservoir hosts of Hendra virus. There are a number of wonderful Australian scientists who have worked on this. I think of Hume Field and of Raina Plowright. And I've, I've talked at length and spent time in the field with them. I believe they would say that there's no evidence that the, the bat species suffer much in the way, if any, disease from this, probably because the viruses have a very long relationship with these bats. They probably have been in there in these bat populations for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So they have reached an accommodation with the bats. The viruses live at relatively low concentrations. They replicate, but they don't replicate rampantly. And the the immune system of the bats don't seem to attack them ferociously. So there's a sort of an accommodation. That's the situation with reservoir hosts generally. But then when one of those viruses spills over into a new form of host, a new species like humans, for instance, or horses, then all bets are off and there is no ancient accommodation. The virus is liable to replicate rampantly. And the reason it's reinforced in replicating rampantly is that then it gets to pass itself to new individuals. It gets to transmit to new individuals of that species. Maybe it's transmitting on bloody froth and and mucus. Maybe it's being carried in other bodily fluids like diarrhea. Some viruses transmit that way, such as Ebola virus. And maybe it's traveling on a sneeze or a cough into the air, such as coronavirus does. So presumably this uh, idea of uh, a reservoir host and, and viruses you know, being out there is how people such as yourself and Spillover and the scientists that you were speaking about before have predicted COVID-19 by identifying these coronaviruses in bats before the spillover? That's right. That's exactly right, Simon. Yes. Beginning with SARS in 2003, the original SARS, a virus came out of southern China. First of all, there was a disease. Usually, there, first, there's a disease, there's symptoms. People are mysteriously sick. Why are they sick? Is it a, is it a disease we know? Well, we've checked everything. We've checked influenza. We've checked malaria. No, not that. Check this, check that. It's something new. And then scientists succeed in identifying a new virus. And they sequence the genome of the virus, and they see it belongs to a particular family. And then they give it a name. They name it after the suburb Hendra, or they they give it something that's less likely to stigmatize a particular community. Nowadays, we don't name viruses after the places where they first appear. And that's why this new one is not called Wuhan virus. It's called SARS-CoV-2. But then the disease detectives come in and they say, okay, there's a new virus It's in humans. Where did it come from? It must have come from an animal. Let's figure out which animal, which species of creature it came from. And then let's try and figure out how it spilled over from that particular wild animal into humans. What's the value of doing that? Well, it may not help you stop an outbreak or a pandemic, but it will give you knowledge that's absolutely precious in terms of preventing the next one. Mm. So that's why this is done, this sort of heroic disease detective work that people like Raina Plowright and Hume Field and a number of the other people that I've traveled with that they do. 
and and they are the heroes of of my book of spillover these disease detectives i want to i want to come to that sort of idea of risk mitigation in a little bit and and what you think we could do as a as a species as a society to to reduce the risk of further pandemics before we do that so these viruses are, are coming mainly from from wild animals what what about say swine flu or mad cow disease we often hear that and this may even be part of the risk mitigation discussion that we have but they may they are they're often factory farmed animals are often referred to as a bit of a a hub for for helping these viruses spread is there truth in that and how would they how how would these viruses get from wild animals to to factory farmed animals there's a, there's absolutely truth in that that is an issue that is a concern let's take swine flu for instance uh, it's an influenza the influenzas are a family of viruses they are very very evolvable they change rapidly they adapt quickly there's a new version coming around the world virtually every year and it's always just different enough from the old one that we need a new vaccine that's why there's a new flu vaccine every year rather than just one universal flu vaccine where do they come from the influenzas come almost without exception from wild aquatic birds wild aquatic birds carry are the natural reservoirs for the influenza viruses these viruses generally pass from a wild aquatic bird into domestic animals domestic poultry frequently. So for instance, a wild aquatic bird comes in and lands on a rice paddy somewhere in in southern Asia. It defecates and urinates in this rice paddy while it's dabbling around for some insects. And this rice paddy is also a place where ducks from one of the local farmers come and do their dabbling during the day. So the ducks pick up this virus and then the ducks go back at night to the house, to a little duck corral. In some cases, it might be underneath the house. In some cases, it might be right next to a pig pen. So the ducks, in some cases, pass the virus to pigs. If uh, a pig contains two different kinds of influenza virus, there's a possibility that those two in different kinds of influenza virus can hybridize inside the pig and come out as a third kind of virus. And there's a possibility that that virus will be very infectious of humans and humans might get it from the pig, or they might get it directly from the duck. Now, in places where thousands of pigs are raised on factory farms in in great corrals, such as was the case in, in northern Malaysia in the late 1990s, if a virus gets into a population of pigs like that, it can spread from one pig to another. Uh, it become, can become an epidemic among the pigs, and then it can spread from uh, the pigs to the pig farmers, people who sell and wholesale the, the live pigs, uh, pig butchers in markets, pork sellers, and even people who buy that pork. And it can spread that way. And that's why um, you, get, you get this term swine flu. If a pig is the mixing bowl for two different kinds of originally avian influenza, and it comes out of a pig, then, then that's going to be called that year, that's going to be called a swine flu. Which was the, that was the 2009 epidemic, I guess. Right. Yeah. And that caused a lot of concern because it looked like it might be quite lethal virus and also very transmissible. So there was a lot of alarm in 2009 and preparations were made. It turned out that we dodged a bullet and that virus was not 
as I recall, it was it was quite infectious, but it wasn't nearly as lethal as we had thought at the beginning it might be. So the the origin you you sort of mentioned there, it can be wild animal or it can pass from a wild to a, a domesticated animal and then to a human. Given the most people, I guess, are not in in that direct contact with wild animals unless they're they're hunting them or or wet markets. Is the biggest risk this sort of intermediary where, where we are in, in, in much greater contact as a society to animals? Well, it can be. It can be that, uh, for instance, factory farming. You mentioned the case of um, a mad cow disease, which we could talk about. It's not a virus, it's, but we can come back to that if you want. That's a very anomalous but interesting kind of infectious disease. With factory farming, for instance, of poultry or of pigs, there can be danger to humans because they pick up viruses, these populations of domestic animals, and they spread it, and then it can be spread widely to humans. I mean, potentially, you know, everyone who, who bought a chicken from an infected chicken ranch might be exposed to a new virus. But in the meantime, there are 7.7 billion of us humans living so closely packed together and traveling so much that there's really a greater risk that we'll get We'll get a virus like this will get it from another human, then that will get it from a domestic animal. But how, how would the human first contract that virus, I guess, is my, is my question. Well, um, patient zero, if we want to think about it that way, the very first human to become infected is going to get it from either a wild animal or a domestic animal that is, has served as sort of an intermediary. Yeah, so I got it. So, the, so the origin is still uh, zoonotic. But That's right. If it's a new virus, by definition, it has to come from somewhere. Yeah. So it comes from a wild animal. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. So w- what is it that affects the sort of transmissibility of these of these viruses and how far they will spread? Is it the RNA or the DNA part of the, the virus and, and, and what affects whether it will end up infecting millions across the globe or if it's contained to a smaller outbreak? Yeah. Well, you're right that it's it's aspects of it's genomic capacity. Uh, some of these viruses have genomes that are RNA. Some of them have DNA. And those code for the capacities of the virus, the structure of the virus, the, the function of the virus. And take, for instance, this new coronavirus. The name coronavirus indicates one of the family of viruses that have have knobby um, protrusions around the outside of a, of a, a spherical viral capsule. And people have seen pictures of this, illustrations, or maybe they've seen electronic micrographs of this. So there are these knobs that stick out. And those knobs are called the spike protein. And one part of the genome codes for the spike protein. So it might be this kind of spike protein in a given coronavirus or that kind of spike protein. Those things, those knobs, those, those things sticking out are the way that the virus latches on to a cell, a human cell, or a bat cell in order to get inside the cell and do its dastardly viral work, which is making copies of itself, making endless copies of itself, and then busting the cell open and going on to infect another cell. Viruses themselves are not cells, as we define cells in, in living creatures. They are merely capsules of, of DNA or RNA. Um, so these spike proteins, they latch onto a cell. The current coronavirus has spike proteins that are very capable of latching on to a particular, it's sort of a a lock and key or a a hook and latch arrangement. Say that the spike protein is a hook and and there are protrusions on the outside of cells that can function as 
is, is latches. There's one in particular kind of protrusion on human cells of the respiratory tract. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but I'll go a little bit farther. It's called ACE2 receptors, ACE2. And this coronavirus is very well adapted to grabbing on to the ACE2 receptors on the outsides of human cells in the respiratory tract. So it's really well adapted to infecting our, our respiratory tract, you know, our throat, our bronchi, and our lungs. And so that's what this does. And then it gets itself transmitted on the force of a cough by coming out of those cells and being blown out into the air and landing on another unfortunate person or landing on a doorknob that an unfortunate person touches and then and then touches her eye or touches the corner of her mouth. So that's the strategy that has been so effective, so successful for this particular virus. It all involves those ACE2 receptors. Okay. And that and essentially that impacts how many people, the average person who becomes affected, how many people they will then go on to infect. Right, right. And and that's a very important measure. Yes. That's called the basic reproduction number. For each person infected, how many more people will that person infect? Yeah, very important number because if that basic reproduction number is greater than one, then the outbreak will grow, will grow into an epidemic. If that number falls below 1.0, then it means you've you've succeeded in containing the outbreak and this thing is coming to an end. It will burn out because for each person infected, less than one additional person will become infected. So you've got a handle on it at that point. So that's a very important number. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Sure. And I guess if we look sort of back historically, how has has COVID-19 compared to, say, some of the other infectious diseases that you've you've looked at like HIV or Ebola. Yeah. Okay. Very different from each of those, but it's interesting to compare this with either either of those. This virus is much, much more transmissible than Ebola and much less lethal once it's infected a person. So Ebola, the case fatality rate, is another number that the disease scientists use, case fatality rate or ratio, which means simply out of 100 people infected, how many of them die? The case fatality rate of this virus is different in different countries, but it seems to be averaging around 2 or 3%, 2 or 3 per 100, although it's much higher than that in Italy and France and Spain, unfortunately, right now. It's a bit higher than that in the U.S. The case fatality rate of Ebola runs around 60%. Wow. So it's vastly more lethal than this but it's not as much of a global concern because it doesn't transmit anywhere near as well as this. It's not as infectious. Is that what we see with these these viruses is, is that the more transmissible they are, the lower the case fatality rate tends to be because if they were killing the, the host so quickly, it would be less transmissible. Is that a fair thing? That's to right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. that's good logic. Yes, there is a balance there. If a virus kills very quickly, 
then it's less likely to transmit well because its first victim is is lying on a cot dying too quickly. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but generally there is a balance, yes. Generally, the higher the lethality, the less effective the transmission, simply because you don't have enough infectious people walking around spreading the virus. HIV is is a special case. Well, it's a retrovirus, and I could talk about, about that. It means, among other things, that it, it ends up working fairly slowly, and it attacks the immune cells, and it, of course, spreads by bodily fluids, either through sexual contact or through blood transfusion or, or something like that. It has been a catastrophic disease. It has killed, I think, upwards of 33 million people since uh, it was first detected in 1980 or 81. It was, it was in humans before that, and I described this in my book, but uh, it was not known to be in humans until 1980 or 81. And since then, it's killed 33 million people and infected another 30 million or so. Fortunately, now, for some people, fortunately, we have drug cocktails that can control it, but there are still a tragically high number of people, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa who are dying of AIDS because they don't have access to these fancy, expensive drugs. So that's a, that's been a very successful virus in the evolutionary sense, the Darwinian sense. It's very different from this virus in that it's a patient virus. It moves slowly, sedulously from one person to another and through the population, and it kills slowly. Quite different from this one and quite different from Ebola. What is the the, the sort of uh, animal origin or, or what do we know of the animal origin of, of HIV? Ah, very different from what we think we know. And again, I tell this story. You mentioned, you were kind enough to mention two of my books. There's there's a book, a short book entitled The Chimp and the River, which is all about the AIDS story. It's about the ecological origins of the AIDS pandemic. But that short book is actually drawn from a long chapter that is within the book Spillover, devoted to that subject. So there's there's overlap there. The story that I tell is, um, as I say, different from what most people think they know about HIV. We now know that the pandemic strain of of HIV, the one that has caused the 33 million deaths, um, spilled over. It was originally a chimpanzee virus called, later called simian immunodeficiency virus. Um, And it spilled over from a single chimpanzee, a single chimpanzee into a single human back around 1908 give or take a margin of error, in the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa. And that is known from very solid molecular evidence developed by two teams of scientists, one led by a woman named Beatrice Hahn, the other led by a Canadian man named Michael Warby. And I tell this whole story in my book. So it spills over from single chimp into a single human, probably through the what it was called the, the cut hunter situation. It was a hunter who killed a chimpanzee for food and got a cut on his hand and got chimpanzee blood into a cut on his hand or his arm or his back and got exposed to the virus through blood-to-blood contact that way. And that was the real patient zero. We have no idea who that person was, but we know that he or perhaps she was in the southeastern corner of Cameroon near the beginning of the 20th century. And then the virus passed very slowly from one person to another, eventually 
working its way down the river system. And I've retraced this river system myself while I was researching my book from southeastern Cameroon down the little Ngoko River, then into the Sangha River, down the Sangha to the main stem Congo River, and then to the big capital cities of colonial uh, Central Africa, uh, Leopoldville of the Belgian Congo and Brazzaville of the French Congo. Those are now the cities of of, of uh, Kinshasa, of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and uh, still Brazzaville of the Republic of the Congo. It got into those cities and started to amplify and started to be passed more efficiently from one human to another, and eventually then exploded out of there to the rest of the world, probably in the late 60s or the 1970s, and wasn't detected until 1980 or 81. Gosh, it's uh, certainly fascinating to, to go through the history aspect of these these viruses. Is there any chance that, say, a virus like HIV, is that is that now endemic, or, or could it one day be completely eradicated, or is sort of hope lost for that? That would be difficult. It's hard to imagine how we could eradicate HIV from the human population now. I'm thinking about that even as you ask me the question, because I haven't been asked that particular question before. It's a good question. I think it would take uh, pharmaceuticals of a sort that we don't have yet. It would take a vaccine. We don't have an HIV vaccine. And even if we got a vaccine, that would help enormously in controlling the spread of AIDS. Even that would not likely eliminate it from the human population. And we know that from experience because we haven't been able to eliminate, for instance, measles from the human population, although we have a measles vaccine. There's still always there's resistance. There's some corner of the world's population where people are not able to get vaccinated or don't want to be vaccinated. And measles turns up there and starts another brush fire and infects people. There are measles outbreaks going on right now. Now, I, I just don't see how we could eliminate HIV from the human population, although I, I wish that uh, I were giving you a positive answer on that. The chimpanzees, are I'm, I'm assuming that HIV is still within their population as well. Is that something that, that researchers have looked at? Yes, yes. Beatrice Hahn's group looked at that and found that this simian immunodeficiency virus is indeed fairly broadly distributed across chimps in Africa. And even Jane Goodall's population of chimps at the Gombe National Park in Tanzania, the famous population of chimps that that Jane Goodall began studying in July of 1960, just about 60 years ago this summer. God bless her, Jane. What a woman. Even that population carries this simian virus. And she cooperated with Beatrice Hahn to study SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus, in the Gombe chimps. And they found evidence that that this was killing chimps as well. So chimps are not a reservoir host in the same sense that that bats are for some of these viruses. Chimps for simian immunodeficiency virus apparently haven't had it long enough to develop the sort of accommodation that I described. Those chimps at Gombe who test positive for this simian virus do have shorter lifespans than the other chimps at Gombe. Let's switch gears slightly to COVID-19 and the origins of that. So we've, we've just sort of covered HIV as one example of a historical virus or zoonotic disease. Am I right that 
researchers are pretty sure at this stage the origin of COVID-19 seems to be from a bat or, or perhaps a, a pangolin or a mixture of the two, just despite some, some rumors about it being from a, a laboratory? That's right. Very, very strong evidence that this virus comes from a bat. There were published papers uh, over the last 10 years showing that the bats of China, central and southern China, carry a number of different coronaviruses. And one of the coronaviruses that was discovered in a bat five years ago in a cave in Yunnan province is a very, very, very close match to this virus, to the point of 96% similarity identity of their genomes. And what that means is that this virus, first cousin of that virus that was identified in a particular species of, of bat, a horseshoe bat, this virus shows no sign of being engineered in a laboratory, and there are signatures that can be found by evolutionary virologists to indicate that this virus is a bat virus. There is, uh, you mentioned pangolins, this wonderful group of animals, sometimes called scaly anteaters. And there are, I believe, eight species of those in, in Africa and Asia, and all of them threatened or endangered. And they are captured for the food trade, unfortunately, and also for trade in in their scales, which are thought to have traditional medicinal value, but there's no evidence for that whatsoever. So these animals, sadly, are sold in the wet markets of, of China and some other places. I've seen them. I've seen one headed for the kitchen of a, of a hotel in Africa when I was traveling in Cameroon. There are similar viruses also that are carried in pangolins. So this virus either came directly from a bat or came from a bat by way of a pangolin. It might have possibly mixed in the pangolin the same way we talked about influenza viruses mixing in the body of a pig. It may have recombined with another virus, possibly a, another pangolin virus, and come out of that. That is unknown. But what, what is known is that it's very similar to, to known bat viruses in China, and there's no evidence whatsoever that it was engineered. No evidence either that it accidentally escaped from the viral laboratory in the city of Wuhan. That's another rumor that's been flying around because people people love rumors because rumors are more exciting than reality. Uh, so there are a lot of people who have who have asked about that and embraced that. Oh, it escaped. For, we heard that it escaped from this laboratory in Wuhan. There's zero evidence of that. And if that were to be accepted as a possibility, then there would there could easily be evidence developed. I haven't seen any yet. So I consider that um, a rumor that uh, is strongly contradicted by the empirical molecular evidence that I've seen so far. So, so far, it would seem that it's come, the, the sort of human contact is, is through eating one of these wild animals from, from a wet market or possibly from some sort of contact in, in one of those nearby caves that you're talking about where the bats are? Yes, um, that's right. Yeah. And, and we don't know. We know that it began in the city of Wuhan. It didn't necessarily begin in that wet market because there were some cases that showed up, and this has been documented in a scientific paper by respected Chinese scientists. There were some of the earliest of the first 41 cases had no had uh, these humans, these 41 you know, human victims, some of the very earliest cases had no history of going anywhere near that market. Mm. So there is a suspicion that this virus was circulating from human to human in the city of Wuhan before it even got to that market, uh, and that perhaps it came from a bat hunter 
who brought it in from the countryside, and uh, he may have become infected, and his wife may have become infected, and some people they know may have become infected without going anywhere near the market. And then somebody may eventually have carried it into the market. And then once it was in the market, a number of people seem to have gotten infected there. It may, it may be impossible to trace some of those finer details. It may be, although I hope that, and some of these, yeah, some of these are, are probably lost forever, these details, but I hope to learn more about that myself. So some of the listeners are, are perhaps thinking, and I've seen it written elsewhere, why don't we just get rid of the bats or the pangolin species if they're this kind of breeding ground, for, for lack of a better phrase, for, for these viruses should we be looking at at this as a as a, a bat problem or a China problem, or is this more of a, a human problem and and the sort of way that we are living and interacting with our environment and animals? That's well put, Simon, and that is the way to think about it. The latter. This is a human problem. This is not a bat problem. This is not a pangolin problem. This is not even entirely a wet market problem. This is a large pattern of events of which COVID-19 is one, events in which um, new viruses have gotten into the human population from wild animals. These are not independent events that are happening to us. These reflect things that we are doing. What are we doing? Well, we are, we are meddling with bats. We are disturbing wild, diverse ecosystems. We are hunting and capturing wild animals that contain viruses. We are coming in contact with these viruses by our own choices. And once these viruses have the opportunity to get into a human, some of them turn out to be very capable of quickly becoming human viruses and spreading through a city or through a village or even around the world is the case with this one. It's things that we're doing. It's choices that we're making. And it's not just the choice to say, well, I'm going to buy a pangolin in a market or I want to eat a bat. It's other choices. It's everything we eat. It's the choices that we make as to what we wear, what we buy, uh, whether we have a cell phone or not, uh, how much energy we use, how much we travel, how many children we have, if we choose to have children. All of those choices are putting various kinds of pressure, various kinds of demand upon the non-human natural world for resources, for protein, for energy, for minerals to go into our cell phone. And in doing all of that, we are part of a network of supply and demand that causes the disruption of wild, diverse ecosystems such as our tropical forests and brings these viruses closer to us. Even if we're not the person who is eating the bat the demands that we make, such as the, for the mineral coltan, which goes into our cell phones, those demands cause miners to go into forests in places like eastern Congo and mine for coltan. And while they're there, they're hungry and they're going to eat something. They're going to need protein. They're not going to be able to go to a, a hamburger stand and they're going to be eating wildlife, which in some cases will include wildlife carrying dangerous new viruses. So we're part of that network of responsibility. It's, it's easy to sort of look at these things and, and silo them off from one another. But I mean, it's, it's, it's all interconnected. The, the, the loss of coral reefs and the loss of biodiversity. and Absolutely. Yes. The tragic, tragic loss of the Great Barrier Reef. Ugh. Ugh. And, uh, you know, all of the, the deforestation that's taking place and, and, and losing beautiful tropical rainforests, as you say. 
I mean, we, we're a population of, of nearly 8 billion people. I think by 2050, it's, it's predicted to be 10 or 11 billion people before perhaps it may plateau or, or start to decline. What is required from our end, in, in your opinion, with all of your experience looking at this from an ecology and uh, biology perspective, what shifts do, do we need to make as a species to better protect the, the human population from these viruses spilling over? Well, I would say on an individual basis, there are some changes in the way we choose to consume and to behave on an individual basis. And obvious things like eat less meat and have fewer children and travel less, those things, unpopular, difficult subjects, but they have to be addressed. Those things involve the scale of our our individual impact on the natural world. In terms of collectively, we need much better systems for dealing with the spillovers that do happen to prevent spillovers from turning into epidemics and epidemics turning into pandemics. And that involves science, technology, public health, and political will. And all of those things are necessary for engineering the sorts of surveillance of spillovers, the sort of the sort of advanced knowledge of, of viruses where they exist, the sort of the immediate signaling when a spillover starts causing a few mysterious illnesses in a village in Africa or or in a town in Asia, the technology that we need to produce vaccines quickly, pharmaceutical therapies, antiviral drugs quickly adapted, targeted at this new disease, whatever it is, measures of uh, diagnostic testing that can happen in real time, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, and you've figured out whether a person is positive or negative for this virus so that you can be screening them for a particular virus at an airport security checkpoint, for instance. All of that is doable, but it hasn't been done yet because we haven't su- committed sufficient mostly um, institutional resources, financial resources. We have the intellectual resources to do those things, but we haven't committed the financial resources sufficiently. And then, of course, there's the, there's the political will, which has failed us in, in this case, certainly failed us catastrophically in my country, in the U.S., to take this problem seriously immediately upon hearing the alarm bells from the scientists, which was back in January. The alarm bells began ringing about January 1st, out of China, and the alarm bells in China were ringing before that, but uh, political leaders chose to ignore them, and so we have a global pandemic. You've stated a lot there, and I want to dig into a few of those things, but do you think that the the sort of slow reaction from from America and, and other countries was based on the fact that some of the the more, I guess, recent epidemics, the, the fatality rates were were lower they seem to sort of disappear with less draconian measures. Do you think they just sort of thought it was going to be more like those? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one one uh, public health official recently told me that this was not a failure of science, not even a failure of, of lack of funds, but a failure of imagination. So because there have been false alarms, because SARS was controlled relatively quickly and only 800 people only, quote unquote, 800 people died. And because the swine flu of 2009 did not turn out to be as bad as we thought it might be, there is a failure of imagination on the part of political leadership to imagine how bad the next one can be. 
And there, there's a failure of courage. There's an aversion to risk because these measures that I'm talking about, measures of preparedness in terms of training and technology and readiness, they're expensive. Mm. They're relatively expensive. They could, it would cost billions of dollars, maybe tens of billions of dollars to do this. And so a politician who's worried about getting reelected in three or four years thinks, well, am I going to spend $10 billion on this pandemic preparedness program? And then maybe we don't have a pandemic. And then I'm up for re-election and my opponent is asking me why I wasted that $10 billion. Well, I'm not going to do that. And so they don't. But $10 billion, how far does that go in compensating for the losses that we're suffering from COVID-19? I bet I bet Delta Airlines has already lost $10 billion. Yeah, well, this, yeah, exactly. This this might be that sort of uh, wake-up call for the for the political will to change. My my only fear there is that it becomes more of a, a reactive response, which, as you said, are things and measures that need to be in place. But whether they will also address that source and the way that we're living and change change government policies to to prevent the spillover from in the first place. That's right. I should modify what I just said. I have no idea how long it would take Delta Airlines to lose $10 billion. But my general point, and, and you understand this, is that the U.S. alone has, has already invested $3 trillion in COVID-19 compensation funding, $3 trillion. So $10 billion is petty cash compared to what this, what this pandemic is costing us. But yes, there is, a, there, there is this wariness to take the risk of spending on preparedness. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. There's various sort of publications, and you mentioned before eating less meat, and there's various publications talking about people adopting a a vegan diet to sort of get rid of pandemics. And I'm I'm always very careful not to just accept something on face value that fits a certain ideology, but rather is is scientific. If I was to summarize everything that we've sort of spoken about, it's that, yes, eating less animal products would significantly reduce risk of further pandemics, but it wouldn't completely eliminate them. That's right. I agree with that. It's not that simple. I mean, maybe I'm biased because I am not a vegetarian or, or I'm a vegetarian only three or four days a week. And I'm I'm, you know, I'm eating less meat and I, I feel a duty to do that. But if a person says, I'm, I'm vegan, so I am guilt-free, I have five children, but I'm vegan and my children are also vegan, then they need to understand that they are causing impact on the natural world, probably with five children, probably more than they would if they were a childless couple eating meat. I don't want to say that anybody is 100% right or 100% wrong. And I don't want to tell people how to live their lives, how to make the crucial decisions in their lives. But it needs to be understood that all of these things, all of these things are important parts of the equation. Absolutely. Beautifully put. And and we need to have 
be able to to have these conversations so that everyone is is conscious of that without as you say telling people what to do so i've really enjoyed this this conversation is there is there anything you feel that we missed uh, no, we have covered the things that I consider crucial, which I don't always get in, Simon. So thank you. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed this too. And it's been uh, it's it's been good to, to be able to talk with you at depth. And it's been good to be able to talk with Australia at depth because I love I love Australia and I love talking about what a textbook, serious but fascinating system Hendra virus is. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time. I've certainly learned a lot. You're a wealth of knowledge. And as I said at the start, you've got some wonderful books out there. So I'll put all of those into the show notes for the listeners and uh, those who are interested can grab a copy. If if anyone wants to get in contact with you or find you know find you online, what's the, what's the best place for them to go to? It's easy to do. I've got a website. It's simply davidquaman.com, www.davidquaman.com. Perfect. I'll put that into the show notes too. Thank you very much, David. Okay, there we go. How did that one land for you? Definitely a little bit to sink in, no doubt. For me, what's clear is that despite the the conspiracies, these viruses are real. They do exist. Polio, measles, Ebola, HIV, SARS, COVID-19, etc. But really, the risk of spillover is largely dependent on how we are treating and interacting with our environment. As we further disturb ecosystems, create livestock breeding grounds, and and tread more heavily on our planet in general, we're only heightening this risk. This is why we need to make personal decisions to be more environmentally friendly, to share information on this topic, to vote with our dollar, and urge our governments where we can to make change. And as a collective, as a species, we would be foolish to continue living as if infinite growth is possible on a planet with finite resources. Something has to change. Human health and planetary health are inextricably tied together, meaning there is no healthy humans without a healthy planet. And again, we're seeing this play out right now before our very eyes. I'll leave you with that. For those who enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend visiting David's website, the link is in the show notes and getting a copy of Spillover. I guarantee it will not disappoint. You can also connect with David on Twitter at David Quarman. And you know what? While you're there, connect with me too at plant underscore proof. All right. I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, smile, laugh, and let's meet back here in a week's time. Okay. Don't stand me up.